Good morning. Good morning, Art. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying your, uh, your oatmeal and cinnamon rolls. So good to be with you today. We got ourselves uh, quite a topic this morning. Todd said that he had to talk about sex at big church during the gospel priorities. Now it's my turn to suffer, so let's do this thing together. Uh, I invite you to go ahead and uh, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Uh, one of the questions I get a lot as a, um, as a pastor, especially with the young adults, is um, generally boils down to what do you think God's will for my life is? And it usually is related to dating. Um, but what do you think God's will for me is in this scenario, that scenario? And I usually don't have much to say because their questions are so specific. Um, but it's a great question nonetheless. It's a broad question, one that could be easily applied to us as men, right? Because one of our goals in this study is figuring out what is God's will for us as his men, as his guys, men after his own heart, uh, what is his will for us? Now, as broad as that question is, surprisingly, did you know the Bible actually gives us an answer? Y'all know what it is? Any takers? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, this is the will of God. Pay attention. This is the will of God, your holiness. That's it. I mean, he doesn't say, hey, this is the job you're supposed to have, or this is the girl you're supposed to marry. He says, I want your holiness. I want you to be sanctified. He boils it down. But what's really interesting, there's a colon right after that, and he qualifies it even further. And this is what Paul says. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, semicolon, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He could have said anything there, but he chose that. He says, this is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What Paul is saying is that whatever decision that we have before us, whatever uncertainty, what we can always be certain of is that God desires for us to be holy. And one of the chief ways in which we pursue holiness is by pursuing sexual purity. Now, I love this passage we have this morning, Genesis 39, because while the, the, the temptation that Joseph experiences is very specific, it's actual adultery, the strategy that we learn from Joseph on how to maintain sexual purity and honor God with our lives can expand to any number of temptations that we might experience. So let's read it together. Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph, he found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. 
So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph, he was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day after day. And he would not listen to her. He would not lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house were there, and his, were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she said, Let up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, as soon as his master heard the words of his wife, spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers. And I thank you so much for this opportunity that you give us every Thursday morning to come as broken fellow sojourners to sit under your word. Uh, Not that we would be informed by it merely, but truly transformed and healed and comforted. So Lord, I pray that as we come to this difficult text, that you would send your spirit down upon us. That you would cause us to gaze upon the glory of Jesus and lead us to rest in him. We love you, Father, and we pray these things. Father, before we move on, I also want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and our brothers and sisters in Russia. As a church, we have missionaries in both countries. And Lord, we do pray for deliverance. We do pray for your peace. We pray that you would remove Putin from office. We pray that you would install a moderate leader. We pray that As Jesus is the Prince of Peace, your peace would rule the land. Ultimately, Father, we do pray too that uh, you would use your church there because long after this this conflict, there will be much hatred between the Russians and the Ukrainians. So, Father, we pray that you would use your church in both countries to bring glory to yourself. 
that you would use them to expand your kingdom and that you would help us here in Memphis, um, though we don't know what to do other than pray, that you would use our prayers for your glory and bring in peace. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in regards to the um, abnormal, over-sexualized culture of his day, C.S. Lewis has this famous quote. C.S. Lewis writes, You can get a large audience together for a striptease, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. But suppose you come to a country where you could fill a darkened room with the lights dimmed by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage, then slowly lift the cover off for everyone to come to see, a pork chop. You would think that something's wrong with that culture, with their appetite for food. So it is for appetite for sex. I love Lewis. He's one a hero of mine, and I know what he's getting at in that quote. He's talking about the perverse nature of, of sexuality in our culture. But that quote no longer hits, I don't think, as well as it used to. No longer has that same bite. I mean, first, just plainly, that pork chop you know, analogy we would describe as barbecue fest here in Memphis. One of you guys started smoking a pork shoulder. I'm coming over with my lawn chair and a bucket of sweet tea, right? I mean, that's normal. But in regards to sexuality, what was abnormal back then, and even abnormal to the broader non-believing culture, what was abnormal back then is simply just the new normal today. If C.S. Lewis lived now, he would be utterly shocked what is considered normal in regards to sexuality in, in our day and age. The battlefield has just simply changed since it was when Lewis lived. It's just changed. What we're experiencing now, what is common today, is on par with or worse than what was happening in the Roman Empire way back when. In our meistic culture, we have so idolized pleasure and self-gratification and sexual freedom, it's, become, it's basically become the god of our culture. Here's just a couple of things to think about in that regard. Uh, right now, we have websites designed to cater towards infidelity. Back in 2014, there was a huge story. I believe it was called Ashley Madison. You might remember that. A couple of hackers broke into that website and released everybody's information. It found out there was 30 million users that used that website in America, Ashley Madison, for spouses to cheat on one another. 25% of those 30 million people were evangelical Christians, many of whom were pastors. In addition to that, the Barna poll in 2018 says 41% of evangelicals do not think sex outside of marriage was morally wrong. 41% of evangelicals, evangelical, one of our primary beliefs is that God's word is true. But in 2018, 41% of evangelical Christians did not believe that sex outside of marriage was morally wrong. God wants us to be happy is the mantra of our culture. Well, this makes us happy. In 2019, when it comes to pornography, by the way, a $68 billion industry per year and one of the leading drivers to human trafficking. In 2019, Barna Poll showed that 68% of church-going men viewed it regularly. And it's not just a young adult issue. 30% of men in their 60s viewed it regularly as well. This isn't to mention all the things that are new recently, um, like sexting, which is a major issue um, in our colleges and our high schools. Uh, the hookup apps that people um, download on their phones that allow them to find partners throughout the cities that they travel to. There's even sexual engagement offered through VR glasses, virtual reality glasses now. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. 
But that's a reality now that kids and young adults and older men are going to have to deal with. The battlefield has just changed. It's everywhere. One recent commentator said that the struggle for lust and sexual purity in our culture more than ever has actually become a war. A war that often feels like we're being constantly bombarded. We cannot escape it. And if we're going to survive, if we're going to have victory, we must have a strategy. Joseph gives us that strategy. Or rather, God through Joseph does. But I just want to say, before we move on, brothers, if you or your sons or your friends are struggling with something sexually immoral, you probably feel very isolated. You probably feel very ashamed. You don't want anybody to know about it. You're probably dealing with guilt. I just want to tell you from the very forefront that God loves you beyond measure. And there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know too many friends and too many people in ministry that are falling and being ravaged by this sin. There's hope in the gospel. There's so many pastors at this church, so many resources that would love to come alongside you as a fellow sojourner as we limp together to the cross of Jesus Christ. Email me, email Todd, email George. We would love to meet with you or or someone in your family that might need help. But we're in this thing together. Nevertheless, Joseph gives us a great strategy on how we can resist sexual temptation and pursue sexual purity together for our good and the glory of God. I'm just going to walk through these things. There's five things on your sheet. There's five things that we can learn from this passage on how together we can fight sexual temptation and maintain sexual purity. First off, we see in verses 1 through 9a, Joseph was successful resisting temptation because of the worldview that he inhabited. He was successful in resisting the sexual temptation because of the believer's worldview that he not only professed, but actually inhabited. I just want us to think for a moment about how strong of a temptation this was for Joseph. This wasn't any old thing. Just think about his story, right? He had lots of reasons to take matters into his own hands. As a young boy, he was sold into slavery by his own family. Just think about that. As a young kid, you're sold into slavery. There must have been anger. There must have been confusion. There must have been, God, why'd you let this happen? And as a slave, he was then taken into Egypt where not only did he not know the culture, he didn't know the language, he didn't know a soul. He was all by himself in a land far from the father in which he loved. So here you have an 18 to 25-year-old kid, right? He's isolated, probably battling with bitterment and anger, bitterness and anger. Uh, just on a practical level, there's no prospect for marriage. He's a slave in a distant land, and he's a young man. And he's under the illusion that he's never going to see his family again. But all of a sudden, things get better for him. Right? He was an honorable guy, so he found favor with Potiphar. Potiphar made him the head slave. Eventually, Joseph became head of the house. Nothing was kept from him. He didn't have to worry about anything. <laughs> he trusted him beyond measure, Potiphar did. There was no accountability at all whatsoever. And it was in that context, from going from rags to riches, that the temptation comes. When Potiphar's wife goes to him and says, lie with me. 
Now just think about what he could have said, Joseph, what he could have thought through. I haven't been in control of my life for years. And we know what it feels like when we're not in control of our life. We usually do pretty dastardly things when we feel like we have to maintain control. He hasn't been in control of his life for a very long time, but now he's been given control. Are you kidding me? And not only that, here's this beautiful woman that's just throwing herself at me. I mean, everybody deserves this. I do. My family betrayed me. I've been a prisoner and a slave for years. Furthermore, no one's going to know about it. There ain't no way she's going to tell her husband. Potiphar isn't around. He's on a business trip. He isn't going to know about it. My dad isn't going to find out about it. I mean, I'm never going to see him again. So there's no family shame there. And what's more, I mean, why should I be deprived of my God-given sexual desires? I deserve this. A normal person, an everyday person, would have thought that, but not Joseph. In verse 8, it seems as if sex, at least sex with this woman, was the furthest thing from his mind. Look what he says. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house. He hasn't kept anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. He didn't say, ah, that's a good idea, but I'm not going to do it. That's tempting, but I'm not going to do it. It was the furthest thing from his mind. It's, It's unusual that for Joseph, this lack of accountability was not an opportunity for him to feed the desires of his flesh or to pursue sexual freedom. It was an opportunity of faithfulness. Why? It was because of his worldview. You see, temptation does not come to us in a vacuum, brothers, with all things neutral. Temptation always attacks our total person in our walk with God. So that means wherever it is that we are with God, wherever our spiritual health is and our relationship with the Lord, that's where temptation is going to attack us. So you can have two separate guys that come to the exact same circumstance, but both of them um, conclude or, or produce different inferences about what is right and what is wrong, and the difference in that is their worldview, what they think about God and the things of God. Our knee-jerk reactions to the temptations that we experience in this life, our knee-jerk reactions reveal not just the worldview that we say we have, but the actual worldview in which we inhabit. And so we can learn something about Joseph's worldview. What are some things that we learn about his worldview? Well, two things. As a faithful faithful follower of Yahweh, uh, Joseph had a high view of marriage. And we see that explicitly. He says, I'm not going to do this first off because you are this man's wife. I mean, it was, an, it was an automatic no-go for him because you are Potiphar's wife. Joseph, as a faithful Jewish man, had a high view of marriage. From the opening pages of the Pentateuch in Genesis, the most foundational thing that we see is that sex in marriage was God's idea. It's not ours, right? I mean, oftentimes, you know, a lot of folks in the church live as if it's our idea, as if, you know, Adam and Eve just discovered sex and marriage behind a tree in the garden or something, but that's not what happened. God made it. He designed it. And so we don't have opportunity or, or license to put descriptions on it or, or caveats to it. God designed this, and, and why did he design it? How did he design it? Well, he made it this male and female so that we might complement one another. He designed a heterosexual covenant of marriage, two different persons that are united together in unity, which in some fascinating way images the Trinity. And then he gives us the great 
beautiful gift of sex that can be enjoyed between man and woman without shame, without guilt, within the covenant of marriage. And what's mind-boggling about this is, according to Scripture, is that God did that, at least one of the primary reasons that God made marriage in the Marriage Act, was to point to the gospel. In fact, you could say that this is the primary reason why God cares so deeply about our sexual purity and marriage in the marriage bed. And the reason that we should care so deeply about these things because they point to all of it, points to the greater marriage. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. God describes himself as a husband. He describes Israel as his bride over and over again. You know, we don't have time, but Pull out a concordance and see how many verses, particularly in the prophets, where God describes himself as that. And of course, it's background for when we come to find Jesus in the New Testament who identifies himself as the true bridegroom. Brothers, in Jesus Christ, the true husband has come and he's in the business of gathering up his bride right now. And of course, all of this ends, as we've been studying in Revelation, on that great day to come with a wedding banquet. When God's bride, when Christ's bride, you and me, are robed in glory without spot or without blemish, united to our true husband forever and ever. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that our earthly marriages matter, right? Because our earthly marriages, even our sexual union, Paul says, it's a mystery, but it points to our spiritual union with Jesus. Our earthly marriages point to the greater marriage that we have with Christ. So every time a husband lays with his wife, lays with his wife as Christians, they give glory to God because they're imaging the gospel story. And every time a single person married or maintains sexual purity and abstinence, they're again glorifying Jesus because they're showing their fidelity to him. And any and all sexual immorality is a sin, yes, because we're disobeying God, but because it dirties also that image of the gospel. And so Joseph, insofar as this was revealed to him, understood that. And that's why he says, you are his wife. And, and therefore, he, he, he cared about his own spiritual purity. He cared about marriage because simply God cares about these things. He honored the marriage bed. And we're commanded to do the same thing in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 4, where the preacher says, let marriage be held in honor among you and let not anyone defile the marriage bed. Why? Because it's God's idea and he has a purpose and intent for it and it's to bring glory to his son and to bring glory to the gospel and to show the gospel to the world by how we act within our marriages and within our singleness. And so to put another C.S. Lewis spin on it, Joseph didn't want to fool around with mud pies when what is meant is vacation by the sea. So he had a high view of marriage. He could also argue, this is more implicit, he had a high view of the Imago Dei. I mean, Potiphar's wife, she was a tigress woman. Make no mistake about it. But you know who she also was? She was an image bearer. Deserving of value, dignity, and honor like every image bearer. Joseph would have believed that because the Imago Dei was central to Jewish theology. It's central to our theology as the people of God, the Imago Dei. So let's just apply that to various temptations that we might experience, whether it's sleeping with someone who's not our wife or, or viewing pornography even. That other person, that woman, even the woman on that screen, is more important than you could ever possibly imagine. 
She's an image bearer. You're an image bearer too, but so is that person. She's not an object to be consumed for our consumption, and she's not a set of pixels on a screen. She's an image bearer who is loved by God. God has made all things and loves what He has created, in particular, His image bearers. And that person is also lost and hurting, as is the person who offers herself to you who is not your wife. That person is more important than we could ever possibly imagine. And we typically forget that when we're faced with temptation. But the scripture over and over again says, remember who each other are, your image bearers, and so is that person. Now, in our culture, our culture will say, take advantage of this opportunity. Please your appetites. That is your right as a human being. But that's not what true manhood says. True manhood sees the glory of God's image in that other person. Do you know that other person is going to spend eternity somewhere? God willing, she repents and is in heaven with you. But an image bearer, as God's men, we, we see the glory of God's image in everybody. We also see that her sexuality, even though it's being misused, is still to be honored among us, not taken advantage of or abused. We also see, too, that pornography is a weapon of Satan to degrade her for moving her from somebody that's royal into slavery. Because that's exactly what it is. And we also, as true men, know too that God not only desires our sexual purity, but hers as well. we got to think about that. When we remember what sex is for, and who that other person is, we begin to win the battle. It does not make us impervious to falling, but it is crucial for our fight because, brothers, there is no such thing as orthopraxy, which is right living, without orthodoxy, right thinking. Our worldview is important. Secondly, he was successful because he was prepared to call sin what it is. In verse 9b, he describes this offer that this woman gave him as a wicked thing. As a wicked thing. I think that's really important. Uh, what I deduce from that is that we, if we don't discipline ourselves to describe sin, those things which are most appealing to us as wicked things, we're going to easily succumb to them, whether it's a sexual temptation or not. If we're not willing, if we don't discipline ourselves to describe sin as a wicked thing, we're going to succumb to it. We don't often do that. I've been in countless small groups and accountability groups. I've done this, but oftentimes when we get to the part where we confess sins, we do one or two things. First off, we use flowery language. Like, yeah, guys, I slipped today. You know? <laughs> or we'll use passive language, like, this happened to me. As if we're an innocent bystander. Uh, I've, I've used that one before. Like, uh, the piano fell right on me. I was just buying my own business. We do that sometimes. We use flowery language. We use passive language. And I understand why we do that. It's not because we're trying to make light of our sin. It's just simply because we don't really want to be known and we don't want to experience shame. And I get that, but brothers, what's re what the reality is, until we are honest with the wickedness of our sin, it will always remain appealing. Um, there's this book that I really find valuable. It's called The Death of Pornography. It's by Pastor Ray Ortland. He's a writer, very gentle, godly pastor. And he says, in our fight with pornography, we must practice honesty. We must fight it with honesty. Otherwise, we will never find it um, appalling. He says, so for example, when you confess to your brothers, don't simply say, I fell today. 
but be honest. He says, to say today I entertain myself with sexual exploitation. Say today I degraded an image bearer. This isn't meant to induce more shame than you undoubtedly already experienced, but it's to remind yourself of the evilness of sin. Just think about it. The devil never comes to me and says, hey, Barton, here's this really wicked thing that will destroy your marriage, that will twist your mind and enslave your heart. Here, go at it. He never says it like that. He always holds out the apple. He says, look how delicious this looks. This is normal. It will satisfy you here. Take a bite. That's the tactics of the evil one. And brothers, we have to equip ourselves with the knowledge of how our enemy attacks us. He comes at us and appeals. Therefore, we must discipline our minds to see sin for what it is and confess it as such because it's only then when that sin or temptation just loses its appeal and we begin to find freedom. As John Piper says, we have to name it, really name it in order to kill it. And that really goes with any sin or any temptation. But this is what the Bible says. Uh, the Apostle John in first, uh, his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, if you confess your sins, not if you tiptoe around your sin, but if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, to cleanse you of that dirty feeling. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, not those who make light of it, but blessed are those who mourn. And what is the benefit for they shall be comforted? He experienced success because he called sin what it is. He also experienced success, point three, because he feared God. We see that in verse 9, uh, uh, B and C. He feared God because he saw it as an act in reference to him. He says this, this is a wicked thing, ultimately because it is a sin against God. Now, had he fallen, he would have known that, of course, he was sinning against Potiphar, because you know Potiphar trusts him, he would have broken Potiphar's trust. He knew that he would have sinned against Potiphar's wife too, leading her into further sin. But like David after him, he knew ultimately his sin was against God. Sin is never, no matter what the sin is, it's never trivial. And our, the wickedness and deceitfulness of our own hearts make us want to think our sins are trivial. Certainly culture does and the evil one, but no sin's trivial, we know that. All sin is treason against the high king of heaven who owns us, who created us, who made us, and who loves us beyond measure. And the point is then, we'll never, if we only see evil as evil in the social dimension, what the world says is evil. For example, um, there's a poll right now in our greater culture that finds uh, the lack of recycling as more evil than pornography. But if we only see evil as evil in terms of the social dimension, we're, we're never going to truly see evil as, as evil as it is. It's only, we only begin to understand how heinous our sins are when we understand they are a crime against our God. Against you and you only have I sinned. Of course, David sinned against many people, but, but he knew ultimately, if I was going to sin against other people, I've already sinned against God. And so therefore, Joseph experienced victory because he feared God. He had a God focus. He constantly lived in the awareness of God. And I confess to you that I don't do that. 
I so wish that I do. I pray that I do. Pray for me that I do. But I don't always live under a conscious awareness of God. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that we sin as much as we do, because we don't have this God focus. But, but Joseph did, particularly in this environment, he feared the Lord. And what that meant was he wasn't scared of God, but he had this constant reverence, this awe of the majesty and power and the holiness of his creator, God, and therefore wanted to follow him, wanted to be obedient, wanted to follow his word, merely because he is God. And it's really cool in the wisdom literature, the end of Ecclesiastes, In chapter 12, it tells us that the key to live a bountiful life in this world that is filled with snares and toil and vanities is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. The inverse of that is Psalm 36, which says the wicked person gives no thought of God, has no fear of God whatsoever. So he feared God. That's why he had success. He was constantly living his life in light of God. Now, what's really interesting in this is it basically teaches that those of us who fear God, who have that that God focus, right, we will actually become better brothers to our sisters in Christ and better husbands to our spouses because our commitment to God furthers our honor and our reverence for other image bearers. And we see that in Joseph's relationship to Potiphar. Potiphar wasn't a believer. But because his his commitment to God outweighed everything else, everything was put into perspective. And that's why Potiphar loved him. Because Joseph was able to love him well because he loved God first. Something we can learn. Fourthly, Joseph was successful because he did not play with fire. He didn't toy with his temptations. And we see this in a number of ways. First off, he simply avoids it, right? Or at least he does the best of his ability. Uh, She spoke to Joseph day after day. This wasn't just a one and done thing. It was a constant drip, a constant temptation, day after day after day. But we're told he did not listen. He did not lie beside her or be with her. In other words, Joseph started finding reasons to go to places where she wasn't. And I'm really glad that that is included here because it reminds us that Joseph wasn't Superman. You know, he, he, was a, he was a kid with the same desires that you and I have. He wasn't Superman. There's only so much a guy can take. Right? The constantly. Many Christians are able to win one battle and fall the next day. We're imperfect. And Joseph knew that, right? So he did his best to avoid it. It reminds me of um, Proverbs 6.27, which says, Can a man, this is in the context of sexual immorality, uh, where the wisdom writer says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? The answer is, of course not. It's ridiculous to think otherwise. If you're holding a fire in your arms, your clothes are going to burn, your hands are going to be all marred up. And so the idea is that a person drawn to holiness will not see how close he or she can get to wickedness. Because they know they're going to get burned. I have two guys who I value and love so much right now. uh, One of whom recently traded in his iPhone for an old-fashioned flip phone. Because he was so tired of being next to that temptation over and over again. I have another guy who so boldly told his boss he no longer wants to go on on, uh, field trips. Or rather, you know, uh, work trips all by himself. Because it's this constant temptation for him to be all in that hotel room all by himself. And that took a whole lot of courage. I'm not sure what happened. This was recent. Uh, whether if the boss told him no or what. But, but with that courage, he went to his boss and said, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. 
And so those of us who are pursuing holiness are not going to get, see how close we can get to wickedness. We're going to avoid it to the best of our ability. But secondly, we also must be willing to pay the cost, which, of course, um, Joseph was. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expanded the definition of adultery to include anyone who looks at women lustfully. And after explaining that spiritual danger, he then said what must be done in order to cut it out. He says, be prepared to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. Now, I don't think he meant that literally. All right? There'd be a whole lot of one-armed Christians running around. He didn't mean that literally. But what he is saying, as men after God's own heart, we must be prepared to do what must be done in order to cut these temptations out of our lives. Which is exactly what Joseph did. I mean, he burned the ship. The context is a little funny, but Potiphar's wife had enough, so she pounced on him and and ripped off his clothes. I mean, just think about that. A guy who's been trying to to withstand this temptation day after day after day. Finally, she rips off his clothes. I mean, most guys would just say, you know what, I gave it a good college try. Have your way, you know. But not Joseph. He ran out of that house stark naked for all the world to see his business because he, he valued his purity that much. But just think about two things. He did so immediately. He didn't wait around to, to ponder of how I can best do this in a way that would, you know, just not upset the apple cart. He didn't ponder the theological repercussions. He didn't try to convert her. He just got the heck out of Dodge. And the second thing, he did it knowing full well the cost that would incur. He knew what kind of woman she was. He knew that this was going to somehow, some way, come back on him. And of course it did. He was thrown into prison. And all of the things that he was enjoying at that time was stripped from him. Why did he do it? Because he valued purity more than he did pleasure and prospects. He was ready to cut that stuff out of his life. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with having prospects in life. But he was willing to cut those things out for the sake of maintaining sexual purity. He didn't play with fire. Ultimately, he found success because, brothers, he trusted God. There's this beautiful symmetry in this chapter. In the first six verses and the last five verses, there's this refrain that comes over and over again. God was with him. I mean, he, he was a relentless dude. He had a great understanding of the things of God. He called sin what it was. He feared God. He didn't play with fire. But ultimately, his victory came with, from the fact that God was with him and he trusted that. And brothers, that's when our victory comes too, when we trust that God. God is our strength, and we trust that God is with us. Because isn't it true that more often than not, when we fall to sin, it's because we have been believing the lies that, of the evil one that Adam believed before us. Barton, can God really love you by keeping these things from you? Are you sure that God is with you right now? I mean, because you're, you're a slave in Egypt. Didn't God want you to be happy? Well, this will make you happy. You deserve this. And usually we fall to sin because we've believed those lives, but not Joseph. Why? Because he trusted God's word over the voice of the tempter that in spite of what the lies the evil one was telling him, in spite of what his heart and his flesh was telling him, he believed that the way of God and the way of God only leads to joy and abundant life, brothers. 
And so through all of the temptations and through all of the deprivations, again and again and again and again, he ran to God because he trusted him. And how much more so on this side of the cross do you and I have reason to trust God? I just want you to think about who you are for a second. You are an image bearer. God crowns you with glory. Not only does he desire your purity, but he has also called you into his mission of making earth as it is in heaven. He has called you into his mission in pushing back the armies of darkness and helping deliver those people who are enslaved. He's called us into this new creation work. That's who you are. You are the most important people on the planet, brothers, because you are God's men. But here's the fact. We're all sinful. We've all fallen to sin in the past. Some of us are struggling right now. A lot of us will fall in the future. And that has to be dealt with. God is a holy God. He didn't just pass over our sin as if it was nothing to it. But here is the great news of the gospel. God deals with that cost himself. And Jesus says, whatever it is that you got, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever is causing you guilt and shame and that is pushing you further into the dark closet so that no one might know what you're struggling with, Jesus says, bring it to me and leave it at my feet and I will deal with it. That's what Christ says. And furthermore, as our great high priest, he experienced every single temptation that we have experienced. But where we fall, he endured, which meant that he experienced the full throttle of those temptations. And therefore, he can sympathize with us in our weakness. And we can trust as our great high priest. He's interceding for us right now. And he's with us moment by moment by moment in the fight. And he says to every single one of us, whatever it is that you got, those of you who are tired and heavy laden, those of you who are thirsty and need a drink, those of you who have fallen and need help getting up, those of you who have sinned and need a Savior, come to me and leave it at the foot of my cross and I will give you rest. That's our victory, brothers. Christ, trust Him and run to Him with whatever it is that you got. And if your brother sitting next to you doesn't believe it and they've fallen down on their face with mud in their hair, lift them up and carry them along with you. And bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ because he and he alone is our victory. we got to trust him. I want to end with this. Um, I heard a take from D.A. Carson recently who made a very relevant observation about war. He said, Army recruitment differs greatly during peacetime and wartime. Peacetime, those army ads that we see on the commercials, appeal to the benefits. Join the military. Free travel technical skills, free education. (laughs) But during wartime, he says, it changes. It no longer appeals to those things. It appeals to heroism. It appeals to sacrifice. He says, how then distorted would it be that if during wartime they gave no inkling of the danger involved? He says, the evangelical church regrettably, regrettably acts as if it's in peacetime. He said, today the church promotes self-fulfillment, fellowship, new programs. But it does little to prepare men for battle. No focus on discipline, no focus on spiritual warfare. 
Uh, no focus on the struggles, the temptation, the necessity of the means of grace. No counting the cost of discipleship as Jesus commands. And because of that, we're being slaughtered. Brothers, as Paul says, we must put on the armor of God. For our war is not with flesh and blood, but with the powers of darkness. Take up the shield of faith. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Dwell in it and help one another. But above all, run to Christ. And when you fail, run to Him again and again and again. Because why? while the battle rages, He has already won the war. And in Him, we are more than conquerors. Brothers, Run to Jesus. You can trust Him to satisfy you. You can trust Him to forgive you. You can trust Him to uphold you. You can entrust Him to strengthen you. And you can entrust Him to get you home. Let us encourage one another to set our eyes upon Christ and follow Him together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the Gospel which tells us that while we are more sinful than we ever thought imaginable in Jesus Christ, we're more loved than we ever dared to hope. Father, we pray that you would uh, fill us with your Spirit, empower us by your Spirit to believe that, to rest in the Gospel, to empower us to day by day run to the Lord Jesus Christ and to help one another as we live out this struggle of faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.